And I appreciate Emerald praying for a good sermon. You can tell that's a preacher's kid, right? She knows we work on these sermons and we, we want to do our best job on them. Father, we pray that you'll just help us in this hour uh, to hear your voice through your word. Um, and but Father, change our lives. Help us to be Christians that, that, uh, where we could be proud of each other and that we would make you proud and honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I had the experience of a lifetime, some of y'all saw on Facebook, I'm sure. My brother called me <clears throat> last week and he said, hey, do you want to go to the Cowboy game on Thanksgiving? And I was like, yes, I want to go. And so he said that someone had given him six tickets. They were club-level seats. They were incredible seats to the Cowboy game. Uh, and he's taken his three boys and asked if Sawyer and I wanted to go. And I said, yes, let me make sure with the captain if, if that's all right. But, you know, she talked to her mom, and her mom understood. And he said, you're the only other guy I knew that would ditch uh, Thanksgiving for the Cowboys. And I was like, really? Because everybody I know would have done that. Uh, out here, there's a lot of all-new uh, Cowboy fans. But I'm 47 years old. I'd never been to a Dallas Cowboy game. I've been to a Tennessee Titans game, and I, didn't, I did not have a good time. We were way up in the nosebleed a section, and it was really crowded up there, and, and it was really loud and profane and uh, beer spilling everywhere. It just wasn't fun. It was cold. But uh, boy, these seats that my brother scored were incredible, I have to say. Uh, we, were, we were sitting up there in style, and there was plenty of room, and the seats were cushioned, and we got there about an hour early because it's very crowded down there. Some of y'all have been to these games, and you got to get there early because there's so many people, around 100,000 people are trying to make it into that stadium. And then they said after uh, the fact, uh, the Nielsen ratings came out, they said not only were the 90 or 100,000 of us watching the game there in AT&T Stadium, but 42 million people were watching that game. It was the highest rated regular season football game uh, viewership ever. So I felt like I was at a pretty important place, you know. And we got there, and it said, this clock said, 70 minutes until kickoff. And I thought, what are we going to do for 70 minutes? But there was plenty to watch, actually. It was very interesting. And the first thing that we saw were the kickers. They were coming, there weren't very many people in the stadium, and the kickers were going out there, and they were hitting the 60-yard uh, field goals, and everybody would cheer every time one of them would make it, the, the Gano and, and uh, Matt uh, Mayer. And Maher, Maher, Maher. But then, uh, you know, it was quiet in there, and more people were gathering, and, 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 you know, you could see all the people coming in through the doors. And then number four ran out, Dak Prescott. And when he ran out, the place erupted in cheers. And then Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard and uh, C.D. Lamb. And then number 11, Michael Parsons ran out, and the place went nuts. He's probably the best football player that there is right now. And the place just went absolutely berserk. Uh, and and uh, the feeling in the room changed when these guys ran out. And, I, and I, you know, I'm kind of cynical and don't get impressed by very many things, but it's pretty awesome to see these guys in person. And then whenever the big guys came out, the linemen, after the skill guys come out, then the, the linemen come out and kind of trot around, I guess, to make it seem like they do exercise. But when you see these guys, they don't look like they exercise. They're they are enormous, giant men. And we were, you know, we're pretty far away but you're just astounded by the size, the sheer size of these guys. So it was really just awesome. But when the whole team was out there, the place just went to another level because the fans uh, were proud of those players. 
And the fans want players like Micah Parsons who work hard, that they can boast in. We've got one of the best players on our team. And fans, uh, you know, when we think of uh, great athletes that we've loved over time, we love the, the athletes who prepare, who are humble, who compete according to the rules, who fight and persevere, who understand winning and losing. And in fact, the Bible talks about a lot of these things in the Christian life. There's a lot of sports analogies in the Bible. And I'm not sure that in our passage today we have an out-and-out sports um, analogy, but as I was thinking about that passage and in that moment, uh, when the stars ran on the field, it reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, which is in our, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 12, which is in our passage today. Here we were in this stadium. And can you imagine what it's like to be Dak Prescott or to be Micah Parsons, these famous athletes? And they run out into a stadium where there's tens of thousands of people and the people are wearing your name on the back of their shirt. Can you imagine? How would you feel if you ran out on the field like that? You know what you'd want to do? You see what you'd say in your head. I want to make all these people proud. I want every single one of these people who's wearing my number and my name on their back. I want to make them proud of me today. They want to live up to those cheers. And so I thought this is a, you know, everything's a sermon preparation, right? You and I will never run out on the field at AT&T Stadium. I mean, the, the chances are just astronomically slim. We'll never have thousands of people cheering us on at a football game. But you know what? Every single day you get out of bed, your, hit, your feet hit the floor, and you are called to run a race. You are called to fight a fight. You aren't pursuing a sports championship. You're actually pursuing something much more important, a crown that will last forever. You are straining every day for a prize losing things and laying things down so you can win other things, so you can win people. And they are watching you. People are watching you and me. They're watching this church. They're watching our community. Our children are watching us. And people are watching our children. And we know if people put hope in us, that hope is misplaced. We can't save anyone. We know that our best is just a filthy rag compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. But that's not a pass. That's not an excuse for bad behavior. That's not an excuse for saying, there's nothing I can do. I can't run the Christian life. It's too hard. Remember, when we look at our passage today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15, Paul's right in the middle of a section of this letter where he's defending his ministry to people who are questioning him. And here in verses 5 through 21 and even beyond into chapter 6 and into chapter 7, Paul is describing himself as the kind of Christian, the kind of leader that these Corinthians can be proud of. I know that seems nuts to say, but look right there in verse 12, and he says it. So we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 today, where Paul describes three marks of a Christian, three marks of a Christian that one can be proud of. And those three marks are fear of the Lord, integrity, and love of the Lord. Excuse me. 
Let's consider these verses. I want you to ask the question as we look at these verses, what kind of Christian am I? What kind of Christian am I? Am I the kind of Christian of which others can be proud? What did Paul tell young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12? He said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul notes his example to the Corinthians in verses 11 through 15. It's threefold in the verses we will look at today. Fear, integrity, and love. Let's look at fear first. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. I've never seen the movie called Fight Club. I've never seen it, but I've heard a lot about the movie. And I know there's a famous quote from the movie Fight Club, and it is, the first rule of Fight Club is what? <clears throat> you don't talk about Fight Club, all right? Well, the first rule of being an example for other believers is that you don't try to be an example for other believers. The first priority must be fear of the Lord. We don't set out to impress each other. We set out to revere and respect the Lord. There are hundreds of verses about fearing the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Fear of the Lord is the way to lack nothing. The fear of the Lord is the opposite of foolishness, and on and on. The word fear in Greek is phobos, but it doesn't mean the kind of fear that causes panic or fleeing. Now, it will for the non-believer, but for believers, fear of the Lord indicates a respect for rank or for authority. When we fear the Lord, what we're saying, as Paul has just mentioned in verse 10, is he has the right to judge us, and he will judge us. That should leave us, as one writer says, with a nervous and trembling anxiety to do what is right. Do you have a nervous and trembling anxiety to obey God? Or do you think, oh, it's no big deal? Because what the Bible tells us to do, it says the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. It's to know that he has the right to judge you and that he will judge you one day and for your conscience and for your heart to be striving to please him. Not so that you'll be saved or accepted by him, but because you already are. What does knowing fear of the Lord look like? It's interesting. He says, we know the fear of the Lord. Do you know the fear of the Lord? Well, it doesn't look like those false teachers that were in the church there in Corinth that some of them loved. The false teachers in Corinth showed they did not fear the Lord because they were preaching a self-centered gospel. They were teaching a false gospel to the people, and they were not anxious to do right. But Paul's fear led him not to think of himself. Paul's fear of the Lord didn't cause him to seek wealth or status. But what is he, where is his focus there in verse 11? We know the fear of the Lord, so we persuade others. His fear of the Lord caused him to be other-centered. It, it motivated him to be persuasive to others. That's a great truth for us, isn't it? Our love and fear of the Lord should cause us to strive for the sake of others. He says, because what we are is known to God. It's plain to him. 
What you are is plain to God as well. God knows whether you really fear him. God knew that Paul really did fear him. God knows if you're genuine. You can't fool God. You can't paint yourself in a different light to him. You can to me. But think about this. God knows you better than you even know yourself. And so our concern should be here to fear him and to know that what we are is plain to him. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? To be an example for others, stop thinking about yourself and think about others. To be an example to others, fear the Lord above all, and then you will be persuasive. And what you are will be plain to God and plain to them. And that really goes back to what Paul's saying in the beginning of chapter 4. We need to all just be beholding God with an unveiled face, looking at Christ and fearing Him, and then we will set an example, as Paul told Timothy to set, fear of the Lord. Number two, integrity. Look at verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now that verse 13 is kind of weird there, isn't it? (laughs) Are Christians weird? Do people think we're out of our mind? Sometimes. Sometimes they do. But we understand, as we understand each other, we understand what we believe. And if people think we're fanatics, then we're fanatics for God. But what we know about ourselves is that we're reasonable. What we know about ourselves is that we're loving and that we're caring and that we're striving to do good to all. That we're striving to love God and share his love with others. And so Paul's saying that in verse 13. He says, if we're beside ourselves, if we seem crazy, we're crazy for God. But you know that we're in our right mind and we're in our right mind for your benefit and for your sake. Paul says we're not bragging here. But we're giving you cause to boast about us. We're giving you something to brag about on our behalf. Especially to those who are in the church, he says, who are questioning our integrity, who are questioning our status as apostles. For there were those in the church in Corinth who pointed to Paul and his band of ragamuffins and they said, These people are simply too impressive to be working for God. Excuse me, too unimpressive to be working for God. When Paul and his group showed up, they weren't impressive. There was nothing in the way they looked or the way they acted or the way they spoke that made everybody stop and say, wow, these guys are amazing. But the other false teachers came in and they did seem amazing. And so the people said, well, these guys, well, they're wearing expensive suits. They've come from Jerusalem. They know all the rules. They can tell us exactly what we need to do. I don't know about Paul. And Paul says, look, we're telling you, we're telling you that we fear the Lord We know the Lord is going to judge us. And we're not bragging, but we're telling you that you can boast to others that what is in our hearts is right. Because God looks at the heart. Isn't that interesting? The way he talks about that in verse 12. He says, you can answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. What does that make you think of? Makes me think of when Samuel goes down to Bethlehem. Y'all remember this story? The Lord says, go down there to Bethlehem and I'm going to have you anoint a new king, one of Jesse's sons. And Jesse brings all the sons together. And whenever he gets to the first son, he says, wow, this guy's good looking. This boy is impressive. 
And Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel, don't look on his appearance. Don't look at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is primarily concerned with your heart. Has your heart been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? John Flavel was a famous Puritan writer. He said, the heart of a man is his worst part before he's regenerated, but it's his best part afterward. It is the seed of principles. It's the fountain of actions. The eye of God is, and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon the heart. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. I like what Russell said there. He said, I got saved, and I was thinking, what's next? But it's a lifetime, isn't it, of Jesus is Lord. We start off with Jesus is Lord, and it's a lifetime of Jesus is Lord, where he's the Lord and the Savior of our heart. Keeping and guarding our heart is the great work of the Christian. What is the heart? <laughs> the heart is who you really are. The heart is what is plain to God. The heart will eventually reveal itself. It may be after you're dead, like Ravi Zacharias or some of these that have fallen and we only found out afterward. Maybe you'll only be exposed at the judgment seat. But you know if you're a fraud. You know what is in your heart. And so there will be some who fool everybody. But the key here is that we don't judge by outward appearance. We look beyond the surface to see what is there. Often first impressions can be deceiving. But there's a track record that time provides. There are clues you can get about a man's integrity or a woman's integrity. What's going on in their heart? Does the man's wife love him? How does this person act with their children? How do others speak about him? Nobody's perfect, but you can be discerning. How does she react when she's sinned against another? Can he apologize? How does this man treat people who can't do anything for him? Is he encouraging to children and teenagers, or does he put them down? Can they laugh at themselves? Can they forgive? Is he the same person with everybody? Can he still love those who've hurt him? and treated him unfairly. These are all sorts of indicators about what is in the heart. And a heart that's been changed by God eventually will show. And it will be, as Flavel says, <coughs> the best part of that person. What does your heart say about your integrity? Can you say like Paul, we're giving you something to boast about if you look at what's on the inside and not just what's on the outside? Are you the kind of Christian in the heart that we can be proud of, that we can say, be like them. Go, go learn what their heart is like, and you'll find the heart of God. Do you consider your daily life? Do you consider in your daily life, what is my heart doing? What is my heart thinking? And you say, well, I, I want that kind of heart. And the answer is, is easy. The answer to having a heart like that is easy, but the execution is hard. <laughs> <coughs> I 
The answer is take up your cross and seek the heart of God. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus, and you will have that kind of heart that is pure. And you say, well, it always comes back to that in the sermon, doesn't it? It always comes back to me laying down my life and taking up the cross. Yes, because you can't have real life. You can't have abundant life. You can't have eternal life. You can't have real faith-powered, God-pleasing eternal life until you lay your life down and take up the cross of Christ. As J.C. Ryle said, one day in hell will be harder than a lifetime of cross-carrying. Are you carrying the cross? As I've studied it for my life and thought about it since I was in Bible school like Russell when he got saved, you know, there's no upside to treating Christianity lightly. I've tried it. Maybe you've tried it too. Have you ever tried that? You ever tried to say, look, I'm I'm gonna do the Christian thing as much as I have to so that people won't be concerned or worried about me but I've got all these other things that I want to do, and making Jesus the Lord is just not my priority right now. You ever witness to somebody and they say, well, I think all that's true. I just don't think I'm willing to to change like that. Kind of like the rich young ruler, right? There's one thing you lack. You say you're for me. You say you're for God. You say I'm already doing everything God's asked me to do. Go sell everything and give it to the poor. What was he doing? He was showing that that rich young ruler really wasn't uh, obeying God. The rich young ruler really didn't have a heart for the Lord. What kind of heart do you have? Is it one who said, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? I'm trusting Jesus to save me. I'm trusting Jesus to give me eternal life. I'm trusting Jesus to forgive my sin. I'm trusting Jesus to give me a new heart that will walk with integrity. Or you say, well, not now. I need to give this a little more time. And maybe you have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you raised your hand in Bible school or at a revival. But when you look at your life and you know what's on the inside, even though we don't. But when you look at the inside of your life and your heart, Is it a heart that is surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? When you say Jesus is Lord, do you mean it on the outside and the inside? Fear the Lord. Have a trembling desire to please Him. Walk with integrity. The inside needs to match the outside. And then finally, the second point leads to the third. Love. Look at verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What a great verse that verse 14 is, isn't it? The first clause there, for the love of God controls us. We're fearing the Lord. We know that what's on the inside counts because the love of Christ controls us. He's changed us by what he has done, by the gospel, by the passion, by him dying for everyone. Here's the truth about us as believers. We are controlled by one thing, the love of Christ. 
The love of Christ controls us. That means it directs what we do. Our own passions and desires should not be controlling us, but the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ, how do I know what it is? Well, the love of Christ is seen in him, as we're celebrating here, coming to earth, taking on skin, living a perfect life, and laying it down on our behalf. The love of Christ is seen in his sacrificial death for his enemies. And we can look at this and we can say, well, you know, is he talking about believers here? Is he talking about everybody? We can talk about the scope of the atonement. We can talk about the application of the atonement. That's really not the context or the point of the passage, so we need to stick with that. But here's what the point is. The love of Christ and the death of Christ and its application and its effectiveness to a believer. What is the result of faith in Jesus? What is the result of a person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? What does it say in verse 15? They no longer live for themselves, but for Him. They no longer live for themselves, but for Him. Christ lived and died for the sake of others to the glory of God. And those who have life in Christ live for others for the glory of God. We don't live for ourselves. We live for Christ. We live for others. That's the great commandment, isn't it? Love God with all you have. Love others with all you have. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love. We lay down our motivated, compelled, controlled by the love of Christ. We lay our lives down for others. Jesus said, if you're my friends, you do what I command. And I'm not calling you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I've called you friend. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so you might go and bear fruit. I love this line. Fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. So what kind of Christian was Paul? Paul was a Christian who feared God. Paul was a Christian who walked with integrity. And he was controlled by the love of Christ. Now we do not always know who's watching. Other people watch how we conduct business. Other people watch how we talk to others. Other people watch how we relate to our family. But I know one person who's always watching. The Lord. The Lord is always watching, so we fear Him. And there are others who do know that we claim Christ as Lord and we're striving for integrity and we're concerned about what's going on on the inside. We're not just worried about outward appearance because we know that who we really are will reveal itself in two ways. Who we really are will reveal itself when the pressure's on. And who we are will reveal itself on that last day as it talks about in verse 10. 
Whenever we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, (coughs) we're judged based on what we've done with what God's given us. So we know one day what's on the inside is going to be revealed. As we said last week, it'll be on display. We'll be displayed for who we really are. And so as I said at the very beginning of this message, what kind of Christian are you? Are you the kind of Christian that we can point to and say, be like her? Or might people look at your life and say, if that's the way a Christian behaves, I don't want anything to do with their faith, and I don't want anything to do with their gospel. How do people view you? Russell said, He was blessed in his life like most people are not to have someone who discipled him. Now, is Russell still in here? He's ushering. Okay, because I'm going to say this. I don't want to beat me up. That's like the most backward thing anybody should have to say in a testimony, isn't it? I mean, we shouldn't be saying, well, I was the exception to the rule. People discipled me. Because last time I checked in Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus goes back to heaven, what does he tell us all to do? That's like one thing he said to do was to make disciples. He said, I've got all the authority. It's been given to me under heaven and earth. So go out, and as you go, make disciples of everybody, all nations. Start here and keep going. I love when these kids get up here to read Scripture and give a testimony one day. They say, you know what? I was raised up in a church, and everybody was worried and concerned about my discipleship. Discipleship was the norm. It wasn't the exception. So could we point to you and say, if you just hang out with that person right there, you're going to become like Jesus. That's what I tell people when they say, well, what do I do to be discipled? I say, find the person that you want to be like and get to know them and talk like they do and walk like they do and treat your wife like they do and treat your kids like they do. That's how you get discipled. You learn it. You learn it by example. How did the disciples learn how to be disciples? They lived and watched every single thing Jesus did for three years. And that's how we do now. Except I can't see Jesus, but I can see Jesus in you. And the way that I become a disciple is the same way they became a disciple. We're called the body of Christ. We're identified as the church as the body of Christ. So if you want to learn what it means to follow Jesus and what it's like, hang out with the body and find those people who you want to be like. And you know, we tell the kids, uh, we say, hey, don't hang out with those people. Because you know what the saying is, if you lay down with dogs, what do you do? <coughs> you wake up with fleas. But it works the same way at the discipleship. You go, you go hang out with the people that you want to be like. You go hang out with that person that loves and fears God. And you're going to learn to love and fear God more than you do now. And that's how we live for others and not for ourselves. Is it hard to disciple somebody? Does it take a lot of time? Does it take a lot of investment? Does it take, take a lot of you laying down your life and, and helping someone and, and you, maybe no one ever is going to ask you, how are you doing? But you can go to your Savior and say, I'm worried, I'm working, I'm concerned, I'm casting my cares upon you. You got one that's so much better that will listen to you and love you. But if we're being the body, that shouldn't really be a problem because we'll be loving one another And that's how we'll prove that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Because we're not living for ourselves, we're living for others. I remember years ago when I was a teenager, and so I want the teenagers to listen to what I'm about to say. I'm wrapping this up because 
I'm afraid I'm about to start coughing. <laughs> but I remember years ago when I was a teenager, and there was an evangelist that uh, went, was a member of our church, but he was always preaching revivals. So we would talk to him. He was an interesting man because he'd been in so many different places all the time. So we would go back. He would show up at church on Sunday nights. Uh, on some, not every Sunday, but on a lot of Sundays he would be there. And we would say, well, where were you this week? And he would say, I was in Mississippi. Where were you this week? Oh, I was in Oklahoma. Where were you this week? Oh, I was just at a church not too far from here. And I was preaching the gospel. And we were very interested in his life. And he was a really kind man and a good preacher. And so we were back there one night talking to him. And the sermon, the, the topic had been about honoring our parents. How do you honor your mother and father? And I remember this conversation we had with him, and he was kind of giving us wisdom and teaching us things. <clears throat> and he said, well, you know, that's an interesting sermon for me to hear because my parents are dead. You know? He said, how do I honor my parents now that they're gone? And he said, let me tell you guys what I've learned about it. He said, the best way to honor your parents, even after they've passed away, is to be the kind of person that any mom or dad could be proud of. Where anybody that's watching you would say, I would be so proud if that was my daughter. I'd be so proud if that was my son. That's how you need to live. That's what honors your parents, is you be the kind of person that anybody could be proud of. Can you live that way? Can you live that way where anybody could say, I would be honored if Emerald was my daughter. Or I would love to have a, a son like Clyde. But I can think of a greater thing. One day, we're going to stand before the Lord. And the way that we've lived and who we've strived to honor is going to be displayed. And wouldn't it be a great thing for the Lord himself, for our Heavenly Father to look at us and say, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. How do we get there? Fear, integrity, and love. This is the way. Let's pray. Father, you've shown us in your word today three things that we long to strive for. Father, we want to fear you with that trembling anxiety to please you and to obey you because your love compels us. The love of Christ compels us. The love that caused Jesus to come from heaven to be our sacrifice compels us. So, Father, we fear you. We desire to walk with integrity, and we desire to be people who are controlled by the love of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by that example of laying down life. And so, Father, we lay down our life, first to take up the cross and to follow you as our Lord and Savior, but secondly, that we might lay our lives down for others, that people might know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, that they might be saved as well. And, Father, just as we want our children to be proud, we want our children to make us proud, Father, we want to be the kind of children that make you proud. We want to be the kind of believers that make each other proud. And I know that I'm a sinful man, and every one of us in here is not perfect, but Father, we're aiming for something here. We're aiming to be the kind of people, the kind of Christians who make each other proud. 
to where when we catch back up with each other after it's been a while, we're still keeping the faith. Father, give us the strength in your Holy Spirit to do that. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.